So could you turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 28? It's a lengthy passage. Um, Ezekiel 28, turn with, with me uh, on your mobile or whatever device you've got. While you're looking it up, um, it starts with a prophecy against the king of Tyre. Then there's a lament over the king of Tyre. Then a prophecy against a nearby town of Sidon. And then a prophecy of the restoration of Israel. So beginning at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a mere mortal and not a God. Although you think you are as wise as a God, are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you? By your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth. And because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you think you are wise, as wise as a god, I'm going to bring foreigners against you, the most ruthless of nations. They will pierce Sorry, they will draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendor. They will bring you down to the pit and you will die a violent death in the heart of the seas. Will you then say, I am a God, in the presence of those who kill you? You will be but a mortal, not a God, in the hands of those who slay you. You will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of foreigners, I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, carnelian, chrysolite, and emerald, topaz, onyx, and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold on the day that you were created. They were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the mount of God, holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So, I made a fire come out from you, and it consumed you. And I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you were appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. 
the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against Sidon. Prophesy, her against, prophesy against her and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm against you, Sidon, and among you who I will display my glory. You will know that I am the Lord when I inflict punishment on you and within you am proved to be holy. I will send a plague upon you and make blood flow on your streets. The slain will fall within you and the sword against you on every side. Then you will know that I am the Lord. No longer will the people of Israel have malicious neighbours who are painful briars and painful thorns and sharp thorns. Then you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. When I gather the people of Israel from the nations where they have been scattered, I will be proved holy through them in the sight of nations. Then they will live in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live there in safety and build houses and plant vineyards. They will live in safety when I inflict punishment on all their neighbours who malign them. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. Here ends the reading. Thank you, Barry, and g'day, everyone. My name's Scott. Uh, really nice to... Uh, g'day, Phil. Yes, nice to have you with us, Phil, and everyone else, especially those of you watching at home. Keep your Bibles open, and we will get straight underway because we've already prayed. And um, you would have heard... In fact, raise your hands if you've heard of something called tall poppy syndrome. Most of you. Excellent. It is the cultural practice of mocking people who think too highly of themselves. I doubt you will understand it, where it came from. It derives from a story written around about the time of Jesus uh, about a nasty Roman king called Lucius Tarquinus. Now, he had dispatched his son Sextus, great name, um, to a nearby town uh, to the east of Rome and his job was to subdue it. And he had done such a good job of that that he sent word back to his dad, Tarquinus, and he said, what shall I do now? I'm kind of large and in charge over here. And instead of answering the messenger with his words, King Tarquinus, he took a, like a blade or a stick and he just kind of swished it across his garden like that, knocking off the tops of all of the tallest poppies. And then eventually the messenger realised oh, right, that actually is the message. <laughs> and when he relayed what he had seen to Sextus the son, Sextus knew what it meant straight away. And he duly went on to put to death all the leading people of the town, knocking off each of their heads. Now, it's all poppy syndrome. It's very prominent in New Zealand, uh, in um, Ireland. <laughs> That's not even a joke, but, you know, it ever floats your boat. Uh, I was going to make a joke about the Scottish version, but we'll leave that. Um, but I reckon Aussies. We are world class, aren't we, at tall poppy syndrome. I mean, no one cuts the head off prominent, successful, important people quite like us Aussies. Don't you agree? And, and it's not just that we don't like people who think too highly of themselves. I reckon we just don't like people who get ahead, who succeed, or who do better than us. So we find a reason to uh, criticise, dismiss, or knock them down. Except, of course, Hugh Jackman. He is untouchable. Other than Hugh... That is tall poppy syndrome. And our reading today, it sounds like a classic case of tall poppy syndrome, doesn't it? There's a word of judgment from God via the prophet Ezekiel against this fella called the king of Tyre because he got too successful. 
But today, uh, what we're going to discover is that what lies in the heart of the King of Tyre, what he gets judged for, is something that potentially lies within every single human being. Certainly you and me sitting here today. So it's worth a listen. Now, if you're here for uh, the first time or the first time back, it's great to have you with us. You've joined us mid through, uh, midway through our series on Ezekiel, which is a part of the Bible that very few churches, in fact, very few Christians know well. Sometimes, though, the least well-known bits have got the most important things to say to us. And so we're pleased to be looking at it, pleased that you're here with us. And um, if you don't know much about it, if the whole Bible is like a, a 10-part Netflix series starring Hugh Jackman, <laughs> just kidding, um, the book of Ezekiel is probably somewhere in the 7 to 8, episode 7 or 8. But um, if Ezekiel is a 10-part Netflix series, today's passage, about five or 600 years before the time of Jesus, that would be episode 5 or 6. It's about halfway. And so briefly, this is what you need to know. The people of God are called Israel or the Israelites. By the way, don't just assume that what God says to them back in the Old Testament applies to the people who live in Israel today that we've just prayed for. Okay? It's a different theological time zone. But the people of God back then, Israel, the Israelites, sometimes called Judah, God plucked them from slavery in Egypt and he guided them to the promised land of Israel and its capital, Jerusalem. And by their conduct, the Israelites, the people of Jerusalem, were meant to showcase to all the nations around them how good, wise and holy was their God. But it turns out that they were more violent, this is bad, more unjust, engaged in more detestable practices and worshipped more idols than the nations around them to which they were meant to impress. And so God sent messenger after messenger, prophet after prophet, but they did not listen. The northern part of the country was wiped out and they still did not turn back to God. The best and brightest of the people of the south who remained were carted off to a distant land, the dominant superpower of the day called Babylon, which is disastrous. Right? That is almost worst case scenario, but the people still refuse to turn back to God. And so Ezekiel the prophet finds himself speaking to his deported countrymen uh, in Babylon. They were known as the exiles. And up until now, most of what Ezekiel has said to these exiles, these deported countrymen in Babylon, has foreshadowed the unthinkable. The destruction of the city of Jerusalem, God's holy city, by the sword of the Babylonians, with all the other nations watching on. Unthinkable. But in chapters 25 to 32, Ezekiel, uh, really God, turns his attention from his own people and their evil ways to the nations surrounding them. And uh, in chapter 28, the focus is on the city of Tyre and its king, but really it paints a portrait of human pride that was common, not just of all the nations that surrounded ancient Israel, but which is also surprisingly close to home for us all. Tyre, uh, it was a city, it was about 100 miles to the north of Jerusalem. Because of its twin harbours, you can see them there, uh, it was a thriving trading hub. It had trade connections with lands as far away as Spain and even France and South Britain. Like that is mental, isn't it, back then? And so it became very wealthy, and because it was built on this sort of rocky outcrop into the sea, it was virtually impregnable to attack. And that made the city of Tyre, and especially its king, a lad by the name of Ethbal III, sexy name, uh, a little bit cocky. And you would have picked that up from verse 2, so let's read that together. In the pride of your heart, King Ethbal, you say, I am a god 
I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. And looking at that picture, you can kind of see why he might think that. But let's read verses 4 and 5. By your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself. You've amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth. And because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. And so, friends, in that little description there, you see a very common portrait of human pride. A person gets smart or gets in early or gets lucky. And for sure, there's lots of hard work too. Whatever that exact combination, that person gets wealthy. And as a result, it leads to pride. And isn't that why we love to knock off all the tall poppies? A combination of smarts, good luck, great timing, hard work, which leads to wealth, also leads to pride. And we feel obliged to somehow knock them off or cut them down. I just have this um, suspicion in our hearts that when we cut down the tall poppies, we're also covering up the fact that we are probably just as proud. We're just not as successful. I mean, they're proud winners. We're just kind of proud losers, you know what I mean? <laughs> Is that not the case that we, we find a reason to dislike, to dismiss, to disdain tall poppies because we think in our own hearts, I think this is true, that if we had the same luck, if we had the same head start, we had the same opportunities, the same natural advantages, the same privileges that we'd be at least as good. No, in fact, we would do better than the tall poppies. We'd be smarter, we'd have more success, we'd have made a better go of it, we would have made better decisions than they would have. I think we're just as proud as the tall poppies that we dismiss and we disdain. We're just proud losers. Either way, we still think we're the bomb. But as Ezekiel 28 goes on, it it continues to describe the pride of this king of Tyre in in ways that are over the top, I mean, especially to Australian ears. In verses 1 to 5, you know, it's kind of like, you think you're a god because you're so smart, um, because you're really skillful, and that's made you rich. But from verse 12 onwards, I'm going to get you to look at this closely, it starts talking about how he was perfect in beauty. Look at that, verse 12. Adorned with all those precious stones, verse 13. And you think, <laughs> come on, Ezekiel, get over the top. But then in, he's even described as morally perfect. The king of Tyre, morally perfect, verse 12. The seal of perfection, full of wisdom, verse 13. You were blameless in your ways. It even says, have a look at this in your own Bibles, verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. And so what we discover is Ezekiel is talking about this foreign king using language from the Garden of Eden in the opening chapters of the Bible. And he's describing this king as though he was Adam, the first human, before the whole human race fell into disobedience. Or perhaps even Satan, before Satan turned into a fallen angel and a disobedient spirit. But what you see is the problem is still the same, verse 17. Have a look at it, it's very important you do that. Your heart became proud. See, really, this portrait of pride in in chapter 28 is one that potentially depicts every moral being in creation. It infected the first human, Adam, who chose to disobey God because he thought he knew better than God and because he decided that really he wanted to be God himself making up the rules. It infected the fallen angel that we know as Satan, who's not a cartoon, but the personal force of evil, who rebelled against God because he himself wanted to be God making up rules for himself. It happened to the king of Tyre, who had amassed riches so great 
that he thought that he could do his own thing. He could be God in himself, making up his own rules, even though that evidently led to fraud and violence and corruption. But is not pride in each of our hearts whenever we resist the rule of God in our lives? Do we not, all of us, echo in the four chambers of our heart, I'm a God, like little G, God of myself? I mean, I'm wise enough to make up the rules for me. Don't you think that is the very motto of our culture? Live life your own way. You make the rules. You decide what's right and wrong. The answer lies within you. Be true to yourself. And it, and it kind of sounds inspirational in a sort of a Disney kind of way. And I'm sure there's a part of it, that, an aspect that's quite harmless. But in reality, it is a modern way of describing human pride, a way of saying, I am a God, little g, right? I'm at the center. No one else tells me what to do. And so this portrait of pride in Ezekiel 28, it's not just a picture of an earthly king from, from a past long forgotten. It's not just a picture of, you know, the prince of the fallen angels. It's not even just a picture of the first human. A picture of every moral being in creation. And friends, wouldn't you agree that that spirit is alive and well? Perhaps it has never been fitter than it is today. When I was a young bloke, the only place you could go to the cinema was in George Street in the, in the city. I mean, there were probably local cinemas around like at Roseville, but they were just for old people, you know, people aged 40 and older. If you wanted to see a blockbuster, you had to go into George Street in the city. So in 1985, I trundled into the city to see Rocky IV, okay, an absolute classic boxing movie starring uh, Sylvester Stallone as the all-American hero Rocky Balboa against the robotic Russian juggernaut, Ivan Drago. I must break you. It was a complete cliché of a movie. But it was 1985, right? So it's the, the height of the Cold War between the US and the Soviet Union. So um, I'm going to wreck the movie for you, by the way, but you know how it ends, I reckon. At the climax of the film, when beaten up, broken, almost dead, Rocky Balboa knocks out Ivan Drago, who falls flat to the floor, like I am not lying here, the whole cinema erupts and starts cheering, Rocky, Rocky. And you think, man, it's a movie. It is not real. And we're in Australia. But in that day, you see, Russia was the undisputed superpower of the world alongside America. I mean, they were the enemy. Now, 35 years down the track, Russia to us is more like a rogue state. You know, it's a, um, an untrustworthy irritation, no longer a superpower. And uh, you might even sense that, that America's superpower status is waning just as China is on the rise. But friends, that tells you something very plain, doesn't it, about human history. Every human empire falls. There's no enduring human dynasty. Every superpower wanes. And you know what? It's not only human empires. Every human being who sets themselves up as God will also fall. No single one lasts. So there are lots of problems with human pride. I mean, um, when you declare yourself to be the center of the universe, the object of your own devotion and worship, the maker of the rules... I mean, of course it leads to selfish living. Uh, I mean, that's obvious if you think about it. 
Uh, it also inevitably leads to conflict because how can you have a society of 25 million little G gods running around, each making up the rules for themselves, thinking that they're each the centre of the universe, as if that's not going to lead to strife. But the real problem is not just um, kind of selfish living and societal conflict. The problem is that when you declare yourself to be a god, making rules for yourself, putting yourself at the centre of the universe, whether you're a nation, an empire, a king, an angel or a regular human being, you will eventually come face to face with the living God, the one true capital G God. And that won't go well for you. You make yourself big. You'll end up becoming very, very small. There's no enduring human dynasty. The problem with human pride is that humans always fall. Now, we see that in uh, Ezekiel chapter 28 when uh, God confronts the king of Tyre. Have a look in verse 6 with me. Because you think you are wise, as wise as a God, I'm going to bring foreigners against you, the most ruthless of nations. Just talking about Babylon, the same guys that have conquered his own people. You will be but a mortal, not a God, in the hands of those who slay you. You remember the king says of himself in verse 2, I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But by verse 8, the grim reality sets in. You will die a violent death in the heart of the seas. And in the back half of chapter 28, God pronounces a similar fate in language that's reminiscent of Adam being expelled from the Garden of Eden or perhaps Satan being expelled from out of the presence of God. So whether, friends, we're talking about empires or nations or kings or angels or ordinary humans when we set ourselves up as little g gods at the very center of existence concerned about ourselves before we're concerned about anyone or anything else determining for ourselves what is right and wrong we will come face to face with the living god and i'm just suggesting that that will not go well for us isn't that the consistent witness of scripture old testament new testament god opposes the proud but he lifts up the humble. Ezekiel 28, it, it paints a picture of the king of Tyre, but it's a portrait of human pride that in some way reflects us all. And the problem of human pride is that we will come face to face with the living God and then I am sure we will discover how ordinary, how mortal and how human we really are. My mum reckons when I was a kid, I used to walk around with a car in both hands. Always had a car in both hands. How can you ever pick your nose? You've got a car in both hands. I still love cars. Um, lots of kids, though, they don't like cars. They have a special teddy bear. Maybe one of your kids, grandkids, has got that. Uh, a special teddy bear that they carry around with them everywhere. Uh, and the bears, they get dirty. I mean, they get disgusting, don't they? And they get battered, and you think, man... Kid, you really need a new bear, but the new one's not going to be the same. Uh, the new one, it's just not special. And so the result is that teddy bears end up looking like this. Or, or actually probably more like this, which looks like something out of a horror movie. Like, no wonder that baby started crying. You know, just, ah. <laughs> I'll get it off. It's fine. There you are. Do you know what, um, friends, the third thing we need to know today is, <laughs> I've done what you ask, <laughs> work with me here. 
No, the, the third thing we need to say, and I think this is surprising in a way given us, is that God is loyal and committed to his people. You read Ezekiel and think, man, you guys are like a dirty and a battered old bear, but he's just committed to them and he loves them and he promises to bring them close to him once again. And you think, that is despite logic. So we've gone from the specifics of the king of Tyre, uh, whose arrogance was representative of his own city, but all the nations surrounding Israel. Um, and we've actually gone from him to speaking generally about humanity, right? Including us. You go back to the time of Ezekiel, this whole section, chapters 25 to 32, I'm going to cover it in 35 seconds now, reveals God's commitment to his people, even though they do a terrible job of living for him. The nations surrounding Israel would be judged by God and experience the same defeat by Babylon as his people Israel because of the proud and malicious way that they treated his people. Tyre and Sidon to the north, Amnon to the northeast, Moab to the east, Edom to the south, Egypt to the southwest, Philistia to the west, right? All points of the compass. God would act against Israel's enemies even in their own darkest hour. Their enemies would not triumph forever. And so these kind of oracles that Ezekiel brings against the nation function as kind of a backhanded message of hope, little snippets of hope for God's people. When Ezekiel spoke about his countrymen, his fellow um, Israelites, the exiles, he cracked it, man, for their detestable practices, for their injustices, for their vile idolatry. And as a result of rejecting centuries of warning, God would send Babylon to do the unthinkable. It would destroy even Jerusalem, his holy city. But when Ezekiel speaks about the the nations surrounding Israel, he cracked them for their pride and their arrogance and the malicious way they treated his people, even though his own people were no angels. I mean, quite simply, God's people are precious to him, even though they rebelled against him. And you hear that um, precise sentiment in the promise at the end of our passage today. So read with me verses 24 and 25. No longer will the people of Israel have malicious neighbours who are painful briars and sharp thorns. Then they will know that I am the sovereign Lord. When I gather the people of Israel from the nations where they've been scattered, I will be proved holy through them in the sight of the nations. Then they will live in their own land and then they will know that I am the Lord their God. The people of God had resisted. God's call to worship him alone. And so they suffered at the hands of the nations. They were removed from their homeland. They were scattered throughout the surrounding countries, but God would neither leave them there nor let the the aggressive nations get away with it. His holy character insists that people will know him. Even the nations will know him when he gathers his people back to himself. Then they will know I am the sovereign Lord. Then will I be proved holy in the sight of the nations then they will know that I am the Lord, their God. The promise is that after the discipline of judgment, he will restore his people. And in doing that, all people will know him, whether it's through judgment or restoration, even against the backdrop of warning. Even in the midst of the the unthinkable destruction of Jerusalem, Ezekiel prophesies a regathered and a replanted nation who would once again know his deliverance and his goodness. That's the promise that he makes to his people. So where does this leave us? 
God warns his people of old, the Israelites, for refusing to worship him. He warns the nations of the day for proudly insisting on worshipping themselves. Is there a better alternative for us? Of course there is. You knew I was going to say that. (laughs) And it's firstly to join the people of God now by humbling accepting God as God rather than insisting that you are your own little G-God. And then, of course, living our calling out to the nations, by which I mean the people who surround us, by following a life of humility. Do you know that a minor theme in the Old Testament is the grace and invitation of God extending to people from outside Israel, his chosen people. Uh, You see it in all sorts of unusual places. You even see it in the next chapter, chapter 29, in relation to the Egyptians. But this minor theme, once you hit the New Testament, explodes into becoming a major theme as the grace of God in Christ Jesus with the attached promises of forgiveness of sins and eternal life and the gift of the Holy Spirit and a place in a new community. It opens up to people from every nation, whatever your background, racial or religious, you are now invited to share in the promises of the one true and living, capital G, God, through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, you only access that if you humble yourself and admit that you are not a God, that you don't make up the rules, that you are not the center of existence, and that you don't get to determine what is right or wrong. Now that humility, friends, let's be honest, that is is countercultural in our society, which, which insists that we ought to live life our own way. But to escape the judgment of God, to enjoy the blessings of life with Him, you've got to let God be God and not insist that He really ought to share the stage with you. He makes the rules. He is the centre of existence. He determines what is right and wrong. He is worthy of our worship. Friends, it takes humility and a reordering of your life so that you're not at the centre. But man, it is a far better alternative than proudly insisting you're large and in charge and then coming face to face with the living God and realising too late that you're not. Well, that offer is now on the table for people from every nation. Jesus has now opened up that way nice and wide. Why wouldn't you take it today? What does this section lastly um, about Ezekiel, about the nations surrounding Israel, say to Christians today? Well, um, it firstly reminds us of God's great loyalty to us, his people, even when we do a poor job of living for him, even if he might discipline us through difficult circumstances. You know, you might be sitting there today thinking, that battered up bear, not the first cute one, I mean the second one, the one that made the baby cry. That's me. It's how I feel. I think that's me. You know what God says? Still mine still mine isn't that wonderful i think this section of ezekiel also um, really encourages us because the pride which was so characteristic of the kings and the nations there is also so close to home for us it it encourages us to live humbly for god if he opposes the proud he lifts up the humble you think who can I possibly imitate? Who, 
Who might I look to in this land of tall poppies and keen poppy cutters who's lived a humble life but is worthy of imitation? Could you not look to the Lord Jesus and imitate him? No, he's not Australian. Who gave up all his heavenly privileges when he took on human form. Who grew up simply in the backwaters of Galilee, suffered through his public ministry, died a cruel and humiliating death, though he had done no wrong. I mean, just think about it. Friends born in a barn, died on a cross. Nothing highfalutin about that. No heirs and graces there. No tall poppy. We could imitate him. And one of the ways, just one of the ways that we can uh, imitate Christ's humility is by serving others. I mean, that's what Jesus did. And we do that in lots of ways, don't we, friends? We, um, we do it with our spouses, uh, putting their interests before our own. Uh, we do it with our children by helping them stay alive. Hopefully we do it with our parents by being attentive to them. Uh, you might do it with your colleagues by assisting them even when there's no benefit to you. You do it in your community by serving, being on boards, all that sort of stuff. But you know, even what you've done this morning when you've ticked a box on a phone, to serve morning tea, I mean, that takes humility. I, I hope it's fun for you as well. <laughs> but cooking or cleaning or praying for others or leading little ones, man, that takes humility, doesn't it? For that will protect the four chambers of your heart from pride and it will protect us from our culture's insistence that we really ought to live life our own way because we're putting others before ourselves and we're putting the worship and service of God at the very centre of existence in place of ourselves. Well, it's time to finish up. Aussies, man. Kiwis are bad, but Aussies, wow. World class at cutting down tall poppies, hey? We have mastered the art of putting others in their place. Except that we're still pretty good at putting ourselves in the very centre. Ordering our existence around ourselves, our thoughts, our decisions. Ezekiel's lament for this king of Tyre way back then reminds us of the danger of doing just that. And that when we make ourselves really big, we'll eventually become really small. The scriptures and even the example of Jesus invite us to another way of life where God is at the center, where he's rightfully supreme, where we are loved loyally by him and where we respond to that by humbly living for him, serving him and those around us for his glory and his alone. And friends, then they will know that he is the Lord. Let's pray as we finish. Heavenly Father, God, we've already confessed our sins, uh, but particularly we want to bring before you our natural proclivity towards pride, putting ourselves at the centre and thinking that we are wise enough to make uh, the rules and to determine what is right and wrong for us. So forgive us for that and um, remind us that we are loved loyally even when we feel like that battered teddy bear. And so help us to respond to that great love by living humbly and serving others for your glory. And in the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Uh, friends, we're going to finish our time by singing. And uh, we're going to sing a 